Welcome back, gals, ghouls, and badass days of the world. I'm your co-host, Cass Clark, and I'm joined, as always, with our lovely co-host, Ryan C. Bradley. Hello. And today we have a special guest, Sam Stone. Hey, how's it going, guys? Sam, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and your love of horror? So I'm Sam Stone. I'm an associate writer at CDR. You can also read bylines with like Image Plus back when that was a thing and Looper. In regards to my love of horror, it really starts as a kid watching cheap 1950s horror like on sci-fi. They would run that stuff like Saturday morning cartoons on the weekends. Um, My dad had all of Dark Shadows on VHS. So I'm big on like the gothic Victorian horror including haunted houses and like turning of the screw and that sort of thing. A lot of universal horror. I was more of a universal horror than a hammer horror kid. We kind of grew up in like a Wolfman, Lon Chaney Jr. household. So there was definitely a foundation. And then from there, you graduate up to the slashers and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. But yeah, that's kind of my horror background in a nutshell. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you, Sam. On. A minute, I'll show you the only really haunted house in the world. Just as a quick precursor, haunted houses and horror is a a huge subgenre and sometimes also hard to define because a lot of things can take place in a setting. So this is definitely not a list of all of the horror movies and horror that ever existed, but a quick 101 for people looking for classic old titles, fan favorites, and hopefully some new indies for you to check out. Haunted houses go like way, way back. First mentioned in literature comes in Philemon's play Phasma, somewhere between 360 and 262 BCE. Um, It was adapted by Plautus somewhere between 254 and 184 BCE as Mastelaria. You can read for free at Project Gutenberg. I read it when I was thinking about doing a PhD in ghost stories, which I did not do because I'm not doing a fucking PhD. (laughs) (laughs) Smart man. It's a funny thing because in that play, It's not actually a haunted house. This guy throws a party and when his dad comes home, he's like, dad, don't go into that house. That's all messed up from our party. It's haunted. First century CE, Pliny the Younger reported a haunted house story. The Thousand and One Nights had at least one haunted house tale. Though it's kind of hard to pin down when that book was written because it's so much oral tradition. Uh, between 750 CE and 1300 CE. And ghosts are all over the 1500s and Shakespeare, Hamlet, Marlowe's Faust. Obviously Goethe's Faust had it too. But haunted houses specifically begin to explode with the first Gothic novel, The Castle of Otranta by Horace Walpole, which started kind of an entire tradition. If you check out the book Monster She Wrote by Lisa Kroger and Melanie Anderson, there's a great section on gothic novels, specifically gothic novels written by women, but most of these gothic horror novels were written by women. So it's a pretty comprehensive take. And so those novels took one of two shapes, which are kind of still the same shapes. Someone was murdered or killed or something in the house and wants to be avenged slash buried, or a ghost is being faked for nefarious purposes like Scooby-Doo. Those are basically our two from like the gothic era to now. Edgar Allan Poe wrote some, Ambrose Bierce wrote some, M.R. James wrote a bunch, he's great. Mark Twain lampooned them. Jane Austen even got in on it and wrote Northanger Abbey, which is a gothic parody. And basically as soon as we had video cameras, we fucked around with haunted house films. George Malise, The Haunted Castle, uh, 1899, one year after Dracula was written, Henry James takes a crack with Turning of the Screw. For just the name The Haunted House, there was ones in 1908, 1913, Buster Keaton did one in 1921, Mickey Mouse got in the action 1929, 1908, Spain had the House of Ghosts. In that same time, we start seeing the first cropping up of 
the haunted house, not as a film, but as a thing you walk through. And with a fun piece of trivia about that, the reason we started doing those was because children were too violent on Mischief Night. Didn't Mischief Night end up actually creating the Halloween trick-or-treating whole tradition because people were too like riotous on the night before. So they were like, we need to make the other day be a bigger party. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a hostage situation, like trick or treat. Like it's like, okay, we'll yeah. have like a Reese's. There you go. Yeah, I feel like I feel like that was the origins of it. Um, 1927, the, the cat and the canary. 1932, The Old Dark House, which is a fun, campy, haunted house movie. 1944 is The Uninvited. 1945, A Place of One's Own. 1959 with The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Classic novel. If you haven't read it, you should go out and read it. And then 1959, we have our first breakout film, which we'll circle back around to talk about in depth, House on Haunted Hill. 1961, The Innocence is an adaptation of The Turning of the Screw, considered to be a great haunted house film by many. 1963, The Haunting, the actual adaptation of the Shirley Jackson novel. 1963 also had The Whip in the Body, where Mario Bava directed Christopher Lee. 1964, The Castle of Blood, an Italian House on Haunted Hill ripoff. 1967, Walt Disney builds the first haunted house attraction. It's like, well, we had these haunted houses before. This was like the thing that kind of really cemented it as part of Halloween. 1971, The House That Dripped Blood, more Christopher Lee, always a good thing. 1973, The Legend of Hell House, based on Hell House by the great Richard Matheson. 1975, Death at an Old Mansion, the Japanese haunted house film. 1977, House, and has some of the weirdest, craziest kill scenes ever. A girl gets eaten by a piano. It's really fun. Um, highly recommended. 1977 also saw Stephen King publish The Shining. 1977 also had The Haunting of Julia, aka Full Circle, the Peter Straub adaptation. 1979, the first Amityville horror movie came out, introduced the Indian burial ground trope, and had sequels in 82, 83, 89, 90, 92, 93, 96, then a remake in 2005. And I'm not sure how to even process this, but uh, it was followed by 20 sequels or other films with Amityville in the name. Um, 1980 had Satan Slaves, an Indonesian haunted house flip, which is on Shutter, got adapted, and I really like the adaptation as well. Just a shout out because I'm obsessed with Joko Noir. Joko Noir did the Satan Slave adaptation in the early 2000s, and it's phenomenal. One main difference, though, is that his adaptation is more of a street story and haunting story than uh, the original, which is a bit more campy and super bonkers. So just yeah, as a heads up. <laughs> 1980 also had The Shining, the, the film adaptation by Stanley Kubrick that Stephen King famously hated. Also The Change Thing with George C. Scott, which is one of my favorite ghost movies. 81 had The Beyond, which is kind of on the fence whether it's a haunted house or not, but it's definitely uh, Fulci at his goriest. 82 had Poltergeist with Spielberg writing for Toby Hooper, had sequels in 86 and 88, a remake in 2015. 1983, The Woman in Black by Susan Hill was published, which might be the best haunted house novel. 1983 had The House of the Long Shadows, which is notable because it starred Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and John Carradine. Just an insane cast. 1986 had House, the American version, unrelated to the Japanese film by the same name, which spawned five sequels of its own. 1988 had Ghost House, Berto Lenzi's Haunted House flick. 1989 had the first adaptation of The Woman in Black. 1995 had Haunted, which is a British film. 1997, Stephen King did his own The Shining miniseries to try to wrench it back from Kubrick. 1999 had The Haunting, which is the second adaptation of Jackson's novel. 2001 had The Others, which has an incredible twist. Uh, another great one, The Devil's Backbone, which is one of 
Guillermo del Toro's mm-hmm. early films. 2002 had Dark Water, but also Juan the Grudge. The 2003 one to add. Absolutely. So technically, I could see some people arguing that it's not, but uh, Kim Ji-Woon's A Tale of Two Sisters is, oh, I think yeah. it's heartbreaking and everything takes place in this haunted home and like the concept of home being haunted in general. So definitely check that one out. Yeah. 2007 had The Orphanage as well as Paranormal Activities. Paranormal Activity had sequels <laughs> in... 2010, 2011, 2012, 2014, 2015, 2021. It's kind of the movie that launched Blumhouse Studios because it was a massive hit for them. 2010, Insidious came out, which also had four sequels. Mm. Um, Insidious is notable because it's the one haunted house movie where they actually move. Like they go to a different house. Great. That's a good point. <laughs> 2012, The Woman in Black, starring Daniel Radcliffe, and has a much happier ending than the novella. 2013, The Conjuring, which reframed Ed and Lorraine Warren as heroes. I feel like they come up every time. I have to note every time <laughs> they're don't. charlatans, and Ed had that weird sex scandal with the teenage girl. Yep. 2013, Diomo de Toro comes back to haunted houses with Crimson Peak. 2013, Axel Carolyn's directorial debut, Soulmate. 2013, The House at the End of Time, which I haven't seen, but Cass, that's one of your favorites, I think you told me. Yeah, I won't spoil it, but I will say things are a little timey-wimey, and it is also a movie about haunted families. 2016, Personal Shopper, starring Kristen Stewart. 2017, The Satan Slaves Remake. Uh, came out. That's Jogo Anwar that we are talking about earlier. 2018, Terrified came out. That was a huge hit for early Shudder. 2018, Mike Flanagan adapts The Haunting of Hill House. 2019, Mike Flanagan <laughs> adapts Dr. Sleep. 2020, Mike Flanagan races <laughs> again with his adaptation of The Turning of the Screw, The Haunting of Bly Manor. 2020 had 32 Malanza Street. 2021 had The Deep House, our second breakout film. And 2021 also had The Last Night in Soho. I hope that was a pretty comprehensive history. Yeah. It took me like 15 minutes to read it all. So. <laughs> There's a 1989 Japanese horror film, which I can't find streaming anywhere. Not that I'm saying you should pirate it, but it's not (laughs) streaming legally anywhere. It's called Sweet Home. And there's a Korean horror movie that was then called Sweet Home that's completely unrelated. But it's about a Japanese news crew that goes into a haunted house and haunted things happen. And the video game adaptation of that is what inspired Resident Evil. Because, yeah, they, they made it for the NES or Famicom. And then they thought about making it again for the PlayStation 1. And they were like, well, we don't have the rights to Sweet Home, but we really liked creating like this really claustrophobic horror story. What if we just did like zombies? And so that's the origins of Resident Evil, which is just bananas. And the other one, um, there's a Korean film called Jong Jiam, which is about the most haunted location in Korea, which is a disused psychiatric hospital in South Korea. And I think CNN was even like, this is like one of the most freakiest places on earth. So those are two East Asian horror movies you should totally check out if you like the haunted house trope. Let's hop into our first movie, House on Haunted Hill from 1959. Frederick Lauren, played by the great Vincent Price, offers five people 10 grand each to stay the night in a very haunted house. The people are Annabelle Loren, played by Carol Omar, Lance Schroeder, played by Richard Long, Dr. David Trent, played by Alan Marshall, 
Nora Manning, played by Carolyn Craig, Watson Pritchard, played by Elisha Cook Jr., Ruth Ridgers, played by Julie Mitchum, and Mrs. Slides, played by Leona Anderson, and Jonas Slides, played by Howard Hoffman. Um, Vincent Price almost immediately gives them guns to shoot ghosts, presumably. Yeah. Written and directed by the gimmick king, William Castle. So how did y'all like the movie? It's one of those ones that was always on sci-fi on like Saturday mornings. You know, it's wild because at that point, Vincent Price like is an already established horror guy from like Return of the Invisible Man and and uh, House of Wax. And it also has the first jump scares I remember. When What's-Her-Name looks up and the housekeeper's hovering over her, I remember that vividly. It's probably the best film Castle ever did. It's incredibly fun and still holds up. I think with time, I've kind of seen it a little bit more like a horror comedy, but I think it's just because the older and hopefully more mature I get, I just find the dynamics with Vincent and Price's character and his wife just to be so funny and so dark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're the way they kind of snipe at each other the entire movie. Yeah, and it's just like low-key, it's like we could murder each other at any moment, my darling. (laughs) It just really makes me laugh so much now. Also, you get to see Vincent Price somehow create like a skeleton puppeteering device like (laughs) in like 15 minutes. I still think that's probably one of the most clever things about William Castle's directing. I don't know too much about the practical effects at this time, and I'm always ready to be schooled. But I imagine it'd be very hard to do that without wires back then. So I love that it, Castle just leaned into it and was like, yes, there are wires in the skeleton. We're going to like make this even more dark and funny and actually show Vincent Price coming on wheeling out a skeleton. So did y'all look up what the gimmick for this movie was? Mm-mm. So the gimmick for the movie was during that scene, the screen was going to go black and like an actual skeleton would go above the theater on a, a zip line, basically. And so during that scene, the movie would actually go above you. Do you all know why they had to take it down? People would pelt it and it would fall into the audience. Um, <laughs> what I read was little boys found out about this and they started going with slingshots. Oh, Jesus. And they would just shoot the shit out of the skeleton. As soon as it came, it would fall to the audience. Yeah. It's just like it's bananas. Not to like go too far off track, but have you ever heard what he did for his gimmick for the Tingler? Yeah, you should tell it though. The Tingler is about like Vincent Price plays this scientist that's trying to find the biological origins of fear. And he finds out it's like this rubber lobster thing that attaches to the spine and grows when people feel fear. To duplicate this sensation, Castle had like a electroshocks installed in certain chairs and theaters. And it's like, I don't know how you could get away with that, even in the 19, like early 60s at that point. (laughs) Yeah. So that like when the big scare moments happened, he would instruct the theater operators to like activate certain electroshock seats. That's bananas. Like, like what? (laughs) Just a little electrocution, just a little bit. (laughs) If you guys could add a William Castle gimmick to a non-William Castle film, what what film would you William Castle and have? You could probably, it's almost like D-Box. You could, or like Alien Encounter, the old Disney attraction. Mm -hmm. During, if you watch Alien, like during the chestburster scene, I would maybe like spray water on people's faces as water dies because you're so caught up in the moment to suddenly get a wet sensation on your face I think would just drive you over the top that would be tremendous so I'm not sure I know little to nothing about 4k D experience that they're <laughs> that they're starting in mostly LA because LA. But I did hear about some things they did for the latest screen movie that came out that I thought was really funny. Like every single time someone would get stabbed in the movie, the chair that we're sitting in in that theater would vibrate and there'd be like a little pulse where the person got stabbed. <laughs> so I would like to try that out with any slasher film. Do you have one, Ryan? I don't have a good one, but we were talking about murders <laughs> before we started. <laughs> I don't know what you add to murders. 
Uh, Definitely be a vision of the afterlife at the end of the film, (laughs) forever in the theater. So one of my questions, which I'll pose to you first, Sam, because it sounds like you watched it when you were a kid. So the question is, how are people in the 50s supposed to react? Because I know for us, it's campy and funny. For them, it was scary. I think it would probably be similar. How did you react when you were a kid, Sam? I don't like horror movies that feel like an ordeal. I like horror movies that feel like a roller coaster. And this kind of feels like a roller coaster. Like it's quote unquote scary at all the right times, but there's always like a wink at the audience at the same time. Yeah. Um, Like Cass was saying, look, there's totally a skeleton with wires. You know, the jump scare is probably the scariest thing. And it's like most jump scares, it's not necessarily narratively driven. It's Mm -hmm. there just to put you on edge. (laughs) It's just kind of like, remember, you're watching a horror movie and it's like, okay, all right. So yeah, I think even as a kid, House on Haunted Hill is is a horror movie that I would go back to even at a young age, because it's a horror movie that invites you in for the ride. It doesn't try to knock you around too much. And that's what I appreciate about it. Yeah. Cass, do you feel similarly or different? I actually didn't see this one until much, much later, like in life. Not that I'm that old. <laughs> I'm 32 for the record, but I didn't see it until like my mid-ish 20s. So I didn't find it as immediately scary at that time when I viewed it. But I can imagine watching it for the first time back then. I think what probably would have stuck out the most for people is the mystery aspect, which we haven't talked too much about. Like, I think the mystery reveal is actually really, really solid. And what happens with Lauren's wife and the plotting behind the scenes, I think really holds up. When we see Annabelle fake her suicide, and is actually hanging there and there's a freeze frame of her body there. That actually terrified me a lot. I thought that was pretty spot on and creepy. I think that it would have been scary and haunting for audiences then too. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of wild because if you think about it, like the following year is Psycho and there was movements to get Psycho banned because people found it so scary at the time in 1960. And so you have to come at this with like a 1959 mind. There's some people yeah. that are probably just losing their minds <laughs> like when they're seeing stuff like a hanging woman or like right. or like a skeleton. But at the same time, Castle's a showman. He's trying to get as many repeat customers as he can. He would hire actors or people to dress up as nurses and sit in the theater lobby and just be like, we bet you're, you can't take this movie. We bet your heart rate's <laughs> going to go up too high. And I think that one that speaks to the gimmick, but it also speaks to the, to the time. It's they're super sheltered. It's the fifties. Everybody's still dreaming of that white picket fence. And what year did world war two end? 45, 45. So it's only been 15 years since. So a lot of the people seeing this film were probably in world war two. I think that's why there's so much of a pushback. Like every Mm. post-war time, I think, at least at this time period, I think there's a big push for like, nuclear family structure order going quote back unquote, to like normalcy. Yeah. exactly yeah like the way things were whatever that means yeah. um so i think like that was half the pushback i think also people that were in the world war wouldn't necessarily want to see like a head in a box ever again so i think it, it was like more moral objection to the film which like like what sam said it's really funny because in the next year peeping tom and psycho come out and those films are yeah. not pulling punches and you're like oh, okay yeah, yeah so we're it. talking a little bit about the relationship between the Lawrence. So Vincent Price mentioned that he had three or four other wives die first. Did he murder them? Too? Were they trying to murder him too? What do you think? Is this like, is he the problem or is she the problem in this relationship? <laughs> I don't think he has his hands clean if that's what you're, if that's what you're insinuating. It's kind of like a Bluebeard situation, isn't it? That's what yeah. I always suspected because like he's on wife number four at this point and they they're all dead and one is missing <laughs> like, hmm. so he walks her into a pit of acid right yep. and then he's like it's not murder she walked into it 
isn't that still murder? Like a hundred percent murder? It's yes. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, if we're getting into the legality of it, I'm sure he would argue it was self-defense. It's like, look, her and her boyfriend tried to kill me. There just happened to be an acid hole in, the, in this in this basement. Happened to have some contractors. Also, he straight up gives every but all his party guests guns. So it's just yeah. like, if I wanted to, I could have shot her, officer. This is very much like a just check this kind of at the door. The movie ends on a note like, oh, by the way, there's this house is actually haunted and we're probably all going to actually die. Like Elijah <laughs> Jr. straight up looks at the at the camera and he's like, they're coming for us now. <laughs> like I was saying, it's a theme park ride. That's a great way to describe it. It's 100% a theme park ride. And I also recommend if you haven't, on Shutter, they have the Elvira's 40th Halloween oh, yeah. special. And if you watch that version, it's very delightful because every once in a while, Elvira will interject. <laughs> it just adds another layer of just like camp and fun to it too. And not just any haunted house party, an Elviraware haunted house party. Why, it's an amazing opportunity for you and me, but mostly me. Okay, we need to break down to the brass tacks though. Okay. So, would you stay the night in that house? And I translate the $10,000 to, to $2022. $95,514 to $78. I mean, in this economy, sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. I draw freelance income. Yeah, bring it on. We're all freelancers. Um, yeah. I, think I would absolutely, I agree with that 100%. I could afford health insurance $95,000. Yeah. I think I would just be like that dude that sits on the chair, locks the door and has the gun. <laughs> just like, like, don't <laughs> fuck with me. I'm, I'm sitting out the night. <laughs> like, that's all I have to do. Just like, don't talk to anyone. Don't get involved in any of this like hijinks. And then I get almost $100,000. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe grab a bottle from the liquor cart too. All right, that, that man had a few bottles. <laughs> he was set. He did. Yeah. Can you still do this trope today? What, the like, the $100,000 to stay a house in the night. We'll just, everyone will say yes. Yeah. It's like a squid game situation. They know the stakes mm-hmm. and they still come back for the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No matter what, you can always like amp up the character's backstory or like their need for it to rationalize why someone would do something like possibly maybe die to get that money. Money is a very strange and powerful force. <laughs> yeah. I want to point out in the credits, the skeleton is played by himself. I hope he's union protected. Oh my goodness. <laughs> has to be, right? Do y'all have any things you want to discuss about the film? Any trivia, anything like that? Did you guys ever watch the remake? <gasps> yes. I think I did in the <laughs> 90s when I was like, seven or eight so i don't really remember it it's well for starters it's more explicit if that the house is in fact haunted Mm -hmm. because you straight up get like a phasmic orb with limbs (laughs) like it's like (laughs) yeah it's weird man like there's that in the haunting got remade right around the same time. And neither, I don't think the 90s is that great a decade for horror. By and large. It has some rough bumps. At least American horror, a lot of rough bumps. A lot yeah. of rough bumps. Yeah, a lot of, yeah, major studio horror in the 90s up until like Blair Witch, mm. which more is not major studio, but like horror in the 90s in, in the US isn't great. And I think those two movies kind of, in a way like encapsulate everything that I think is wrong with the genre at that point. Mm. And yeah, House on Haunted Hill. What I like about it, yeah, like Cass was saying, there is a murder mystery aspect to it. There is a level of ambiguity behind the characters. There's a level of the house is actually haunted. Mm. All that nuance, as only a major studio movie can pull off, all that nuance is dispensed immediately in the uh, in the remake yeah it's not great <laughs> i appreciate anyone that spent hours of their life on that film because it's really hard to get a film made but whew, 
and it's a fun <sighs> film to watch with friends and some beers i will say that i wonder how much of it is like ori- like original director vision and how much of it is studio execs like we need this to be gorier are there yeah. actually ghosts we need to put actual ghosts that's always yeah. when stuff like that always kind of smells funny like that because yeah. A lot of those filmmakers are great. By and large, most of them are. And I, I think some suits like, well, this is called House on Haunted Hill. Where's the ghost? <laughs> it's just like that. <laughs> or they're like, we oh, just God. figured out we could possibly use CGI. Like, yeah. let's try it. And it's like, well, well, hold on. <laughs> we need more gore. Okay, fine. Sure. Bring it on. Okay. Well, this brings us to the deep house. So here we are in Southwest France. We're lost. It wouldn't exactly be easy to find if it was really such a super secret spot, would it? The Deep House is an independent French haunted house film that takes place underwater, which is a very interesting concept. It got its North American premiere at this uh, past summer's Fantasia Film Festival. The premise is really straightforward. Two YouTubers, Ben, played by James Jagger, and Tina, played by Camille Rowe, are uh, urbex, (laughs) which is slang I wasn't familiar with. Basically, they love to find abandoned and haunted things. By this YouTube channel, they decide that they're going to dive into this remote French lake that people don't really have access to to get a look at what's supposed to be a preserved haunted house underwater that they don't totally know it's haunted but they suspect for some reason this house underwater is not at all decaying everything's in its proper place the doors and windows still work it's very strange and as you can imagine things go terribly wrong as certain and directed by alexandra bustillo and uh julian mori it took 33 days to shoot this film underwater which is pretty impressive considering how much of it is actually underwater uh one thing i would like to call out is it's i think it's cinematographer uh jocks ballard did a great job with some of the shots i had no idea what to expect going in and but i thought it's hard enough to film in a house like in a one structure house to go around certain angles and make sure that it visually makes sense to people it's a lot harder than it looks and then to do that underwater is I think incredibly difficult. So I would love to hear from both of you how you think the visuals worked or didn't maybe in this film. Yeah, I think the the visuals were great. There's times when it's found footage and there's times where we backed up behind even the drone. Yeah. Um, I think they needed that. I don't blame them. To your point about the houses being hard to film in, I remember watching one of the special features for Parasite Mm. and in Parasite, they actually use CGI to create hallways at times. Um, which I found fascinating. If if I looked at Parasite, I'd have never guessed, like, there's some CGI in this movie. Can you talk more about why they did that? So, like, they they built part of a house, right? Like, they film in. And then they used the CGI to kind of finish it up. So, like, if they're going down the stairs to make the stairs longer or to have that turn. So, remember in Parasite, there's, like, a staircase that goes down and you turn and there's a staircase that goes further down, kind of in a triangle shape. I think that that was where they used the CGI or where they showed the CGI in the special feature. There could have been more than that. But they used it kind of just to finish the house. And I wonder if they use something like that in this film as well. Yeah. I mean, and I think the all the horror is informed by the cinematography in, in filming in a house. And in the, it's you're taking a claustrophobic setting and you're making it even more claustrophobic by putting it underwater. And it's sometimes in first person view. And I think that's where this movie excels yeah yeah i love i love the cinema the cinematography for that for me especially towards the end of the, when they're trying to make the escape you really feel it and i think it really works it does use a lot of found footage and fun footage is always tricky to make work in horror because i feel like the question audiences will always ask or at least i ask is like why are we still filming <laughs> like what is the need to film so just simply having them being youtubers kind of like hand leads that question but that being said 
do we think that the found footage aspect of it worked? Do we want more of like first person shooting or did we want more of just actually watching them in the space? Was there ever a time <laughs> where you guys felt that it was kind of, they should have dialed down the, the drone cameras and stuff? Or do you think it, was, it felt organic for the most part? I think it felt organic to me, especially the their point of view shots because the, the cameras were just in the goggles. If you're holding a handheld camera, yeah, put it down. If it's mm. in your goggles, you're not thinking about like, if you're in a situation of danger, think better turn the camera and my goggles off. <laughs> yeah. I think what would have been interesting to harken back to like paranormal activity, the, the original one, one of the interesting things that, and I think what people love about that movie so much is obviously the ending shot. But I think what I like about what works with the ending shot is it's distanced out and we have just a fuller like shot of everything that's happening in the scene while like, these scary events are happening. And I think what I would have wanted a bit more is maybe the drone itself having more of, I guess, a voice in the film, like being able to see the sh- like the creepy things that are happening while it's happening to the characters. Because I think sometimes it's really tricky to do, but that can be even more haunting. Like if you see someone getting dragged away and everything's quiet and still, like that yeah. can be really terrifying. I think that would have been obviously a lot harder to do, but I kind of wanted more of that if you're we gonna have that point of view anyway. I was definitely expecting um, a cannibal holocaust ending with Pierre <laughs> releasing the footage mm. or something like that. I was surprised we didn't get that because I thought the guy would get the million views that he was lusting after, but only like post-mortem. Yeah, I mean, speaking of that, and I know Ryan has some thoughts already about our leading lady, Tina. <laughs> like, what did we think of the ending? So uh, definitely spoiler warning from this point forward, both the YouTubers totally die on this quest. Yeah. How do we feel about that? With Mick Jagger's son, it's a little more understandable. And he gets the one last like, hey, I'm, I'm back normal. Get out of here before he goes out. There's part of me that wanted that didn't want him to come back to his senses at all. Right. Mm, yeah. Just like if you're going to do the possession and especially if it's stacked that much towards the end, just keep him evil. You know, just keep them them like corrupted. But I think Tina's death works because of how tragic and how close it is. And it also adds a ticking time clock that was always technically there, but we're kind of very cruelly reminded that it's there. That I thought was, you know, and just in terms of the cinematography, just kind of like watching her get close to the light only not to be able to reach it was one of the more effective parts. Yeah, I think it was well set up with the, the early scene where she holds her breath underwater, we see she held her breath for like a minute 30 mm. and she came out and she was like, I can hold my breath for three minutes. I thought it was going to be a, a happier ending. I even turned to my wife, Betsy watched it with me. And I turned her at the end and I was like, the American remake's not going to have that. Mm-hmm. She's going to survive the American remake because in an American movie, she lives. And she, even though she only held her breath 90 seconds, she finds the inner strength to do the other 90 seconds and get out of the water. And in the American version of this film, if there ever was one, which there won't be because it's in English anyways, right? I hope. Uh, it's 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 in English and French because it's a French film. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I wasn't surprised then you going in. It was a French film. And this is something we were kind of chatting about earlier before we started recording. But like French films typically have some existential yeah. things, even the romantic comedies often end in death as well. <laughs> if, uh, I mean, if I can go abstract for a second, yes, do, you please. Think, <laughs> do you guys, do y'all think that horror is more effective when it doesn't have a happy ending? <sighs> I want to say it doesn't matter. I think as long as the ending is earned, but then I look at my favorite movies like Audition, 
The Vanishing, um, Don't Look Now. And all of those have incredibly bleak endings. They're also all like two hours of a random dude wandering and then she's fucking killed. <laughs> um, and I guess that's like my favorite kind of movie. So I, I think I have to say, yeah. But I think it depends. Like I think if uh, the, the last movie we talked about, The House on Haunted Hill had an unhappy ending, it wouldn't work anymore. Like that campiness and like, we were laughing the whole time we were talking about that movie for the most part. Mm. And I don't think we would have been if it had that kind of unhappy ending. House on Haunted Hill, despite the premise, isn't about the night. It's about Vincent Price's marriage. Imagine yeah. if the House on Haunted Hill ended like The Mist and Vincent Price just <laughs> everybody. Yeah. It wouldn't have been this. We wouldn't be laughing. And then the army shows up at the end for some reason. <laughs> it would have been fine. You just have to wait. <laughs> I think for me, because when I think about some of my favorite films, like The Descent, Ginger Snaps, they're not necessarily, well, The Descent is not a happy ending, but, um, but I think what I really need is a sense of consequence, you know, like I think what yeah. makes me upset is like, I will be put through the ringer in a horror film, but I like there to be kind of sort of a reason why, like even with the fun slasher, there's like an agreement with the audience that it's for entertainment. So I would like to be entertained. <laughs> Taking it like on a Grand Guignol level. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it has to have consequences and I'm okay with tragic consequences. I think that it doesn't have to be either or like, I think actually I really liked Ryan's suggestion that like what would have made the film, I think maybe land a bit better for me was if Pierre did have more of a role and did actually upload their footage or if like, I don't know, seeing Tina upload the footage and survive and then seeing what that does to her I just I felt like maybe for me this one didn't land I think it's more because of the character development felt not totally fleshed out I feel like Ben is much more characterized than Tina mm-hmm. and Tina's just basically like I'm doing it for Ben and Ben is this like not super attractive kind of annoying British guy <laughs> I didn't he know have he moves like Jagger he doesn't have his uh, he doesn't have his, his dad yeah um, and Mick Jagger, as much as I love the Rolling Stones, is an ugly son of a bitch. <laughs> He's just incredibly confident. Like, if you watch him in the 70s, because I thought for a while, because I saw him in concert in, like, the 2000s, I thought that Mick Jagger got ugly as he got old. Oh, but it doesn't matter, because he's got so much confidence. He's supremely confident. Yeah. But then I watched a video of him singing in, like, the 60s. It's like, oh, he always kind of had that face. Yes. Um, and yes. I love Mick Jagger. He's a great singer, and he's... Like I said, supremely confident. I think for me, I don't know what it is about, maybe the way it was paced or plotted, but a part of me really wondered like, oh my goodness, this would make an amazing video game. Like, because Tina kind of felt like the character that was like, if I was playing the video game, I would clearly be Tina being like, I don't know why I'm going to the next room, but now I'm in the next room. Oh, let's not go to the cellar. And we're going into the cellar because maybe Hell. there's a clue. <laughs> yeah, anytime there's a giant, a door with a giant cross in front of it, like yes. even if you're not particularly religious, there's probably something bad on the other side. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's, they take it as a warning, if not a theological symbol. <laughs> like, but, but no, of course, they have to, all the bad horror movie decisions yeah. are, are here. So um, I had a question about that cross. Did they release those evil ghost people? out into the world now that they moved that cross? <laughs> were they locked in there by that? They also took their face masks off. They were also holding them in. Right, right. So are those people going up to the ground to see Pierre now? <laughs> That's why I don't think the post-credit stinger works that well because it's it implies, the post-credit stinger implies that Pierre has been doing this for a while. But yeah. the movie itself 
implies that they're the first people to get that far because they remove the cross and unmask the couple. So, you know, you were suggesting like, what if there was a post-credit scene where like it, the video goes viral and people flock to the lake and become new victims. That makes more sense. The Mm -hmm. idea that like the cross is holding them in place for starters, stuff where the family gets busted takes place in the eighties. Mm-hmm. So we don't necessarily need this like Franciscan retcon that, that like, <laughs> hey, we have to like, we don't have to get medieval on these people, but mm-hmm. they do. Yeah. Also, don't they like straight up like shoot them? Like, aren't they coming in with guns? Like there's a lot of things in this movie that the more you sit down and think about it, you're like, well, that doesn't really make sense. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I think, I think Pierre, I think that they're out in the world now. I think they're out. I, I don't know if the cross was necessarily keeping them as much as the face masks were, mm-hmm. but they're, they're free now. They're on the on the loose. Cass, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think so. I think that's the only thing that makes sense for why Pierre would ever care to help these two YouTubers that he meets for like five seconds and shows interest in. I do love that Ben is just oblivious to how this might be a, a setup. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I trust this man I met at a wine food truck. <laughs> like That is okay. It's a move. But yeah, I think that they're released out into the world or at least they're released into the lake and maybe all the other people on the other side of the lake now are, are screwed. <laughs> yeah. So any other final thoughts about, I guess this as a haunted house film, what worked, what didn't, what we wanted to see, what we were happy that we saw. This, both this and House on a Haunted Hill kind of capitalize on my favorite trope within haunted house movies or haunted house stories. The idea that a geographical location is both malevolent and hungry. Mm. Um, Hmm. The French family personifies that directly in the deep house. Also, this movie is written and directed by the, by the team that did the um, Texas chainsaw prequel. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Interestingly enough, I don't know where that, how that ties in. Well, you could argue the Sawyer, the Sawyer family are definitely hungry, right? But the, um, Yeah. Uh, I'm very specifically hungry. House on Haunted Hill, it's a little more subtle. There's the the ending stinger with Elisha Cook basically saying the ghosts are coming to add to their number. Mm-hmm. And the remake makes it more explicit. I love the idea that that haunted houses, like the grudge where there's been such intense negative emotions, that house becomes haunted and mm-hmm. is craving more. Dr. Sleep has it with the end. So does The Shining with the Overlook. House on a Haunting of Hill House certainly has that. Um, yeah, I, I love evil hungry locations. There's just something something sinister about that that I enjoy. What about you, Ryan? I had a different but similar reading where mm. it's not about the house as much as about the broken relationship taking place inside the house. Mm. So in both of these, I think a lot of the other ones from our history, although correct me if I'm wrong on that, have mm. these broken relationships with Vincent Price and his wife and the house on Haunted Hill. It's like very much like, please just get a divorce and stop doing this to all the people <laughs> around you. Yeah. Like instead of having a $10,000 per guest house party where you give everyone guns, what <laughs> if you just went to a, a divorce lawyer and just settled, you know, like instead of bringing anyone else into your broken marriage. I remember the Deep House felt very similar where I feel like Tina is just completely enthralled to Ben and it seems like a very uneven relationship dynamic where she's like going scuba diving into a haunted house underwater for his YouTube show because he felt a little depressed and it doesn't seem like he has any interest in anything she wants. He goes to get her the wine, yes. But then on the way back, she she even says it in the line. She's like, please do not bring that man over here. Mm. And you get the feeling that like Ben has frequently done that in ways that have made her uncomfortable. 
Sure. And it makes it to me feel like the thing haunting them isn't the ghosts in the house or the ghosts are the product of the, the holes in their relationship. But I don't know if that goes for other haunted houses. We just picked two where that's the case. I think hmm, that's an interesting thought. I think a lot of the times in movies, especially haunted house movies, they'll say something like, someone's soul or spirit was weak and susceptible. And in the same way that kind of possession films do that too, like someone was open to, I guess, destruction <laughs> in some in some kind of way or form. But I also think it's, it's fair to say that a lot of haunted house stories, I think weak relationships and mistrust actually sows a seed for good haunted house stories. Because at the end yeah. of the day, like if haunted houses are this malicious, like hungry force, like Sam was saying, what they need to do is they need to either seduce you or trick you and... I think a lot of the times when it works successfully is when they use romantic pairings to kind of play with each other like that. Cause it, it just gives them an avenue to like intercept and get into someone's mind. Right. It's like that deleted scene in the exorcist. I think it's in the version that nobody has seen though. Now by now everybody has seen where father Karis straight up asks father Marin. It's like, why would the devil do this? Why would, yeah. what's the point of all this? And he's like despair. He's just trying to take a familiar face, an innocent face, possess it just to get you to despair and doubt everything. And I think that, I mean, you look at the beginning of The Haunting of Hill House, Crane family, so far as we can tell, are tight. But over the course of that season, when we see them as adults, they've fractured. And that story is very much about them sharing this trauma from Hill House and having to come back and overcome that together. Yeah, I think I I love what you were saying, Ryan. I think it's it's very much you know, a one-sided relationship for Tina. And it, it unfortunately costs her her life because she's just following his lead for so much of the movie. I was looking at some of the notes and there were, <laughs> you guys were mentioning like the exposition, the over-reliance oh, yeah. on exposition. And that's totally the case, right? Yeah. <laughs> like there's straight up, like he straight up has a story time with his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get the projector on. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, we're not, there's, there's no mystery behind this at all. No. Okay. <laughs> It was, uh, it was, I feel like ballsy. I think they're really <laughs> betting a lot on either they were short under time or they're like, this is interesting. We're just going to have <laughs> Ben and his little ghost friend next to him running the projector and telling this, this house's history story. Yeah. Like, well, I can say I've never seen that done before. So yeah. A plus yeah. for that. <laughs> that is a risk. <laughs> yeah. Be original. Be seven up. <laughs> So I believe that's just about it on our haunted house episode. Ryan has a book coming out soon that I would love to hear more about (laughs) and our audience does too. So my book Saint's Blood is coming out from St. Rooster's Books in April. It is a horror novella. There are no haunted houses. It's about a a man who's kidnapped by a very large family. They all played line positions in football. Um, and they kidnap him and they're harvesting his blood. You're trying to figure out what's going on. Why they harvest his blood. If you want answers, please buy my book. Cliff Notes are a Patreon perk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, thank you, Ryan. We can't wait to read that book. And thank you, Sam, for joining us. This has been super fun. And we'd love to have you on again if you're game. Yeah, bring it on. You know, we'll, uh, whatever topic you throw at me, I'll, I'll read up. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Next up on the Horror Hangover Show, 
me and Ryan are going to be tackling a three-month mini-arc on vampires and horror movie history. Coming this June, we'll be talking all about sexy vampires with friend of the pod, Kenzie, from Beyond the Cabin in the Woods podcast, which means, of course, we'll be tackling Bela Lugosi's Dracula, as well as 2021's Jacob's Wife, starring the one, the only, Barbara Crampton. Until then, sharpen those steaks, pack some sunglasses and garlic mace, and think twice before any date asks to meet up only in the shadows of the night. Come follow us at horrorhangover underscore on Twitter. And until then, stay out of the shadow.